you need is love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne coming to you from Athen Rye. I hope everyone's well. Coming to you from a very quiet parish, but no doubt speaking to some very quiet parishes as well, as we start to make our way through this most recent lockdown. All you need is love. You remember the line? John Lennon's seems to, in some ways, sum up uh, the popular image of the 1960s. All you need now is the old passion wagon and the, the daisies painted on the outside, tearing down the dirt track towards Woodstock, if there were dirt tracks towards Woodstock. It may not be that simple. I suppose the problem with the Catholic approach is that you ended up seeming to rain on so many parades. But it's probably not quite that simple. I mean, if you were to sum up that passionate belief, fueled partly by the Vietnam War and a whole load of stuff, if you were to sum up that belief, it would be that iconic image of that student. Do you remember that student, was it at Kent State, going along the row of National Guardsmen who had their rifles levelled or at the ready, putting a flower into the barrel of each gun? And there's something, no more than the line, all you need is love, there's something iconic about that photograph as well something tragic uh, because in a sense it's doomed to disappointment human love is a fraught affair as the popular ballad has it it's teasing and it's pleasing it fades away like the morning dew it's a very fraught affair it's a very tragic affair and i'd put it to you that in the gospel today of this sunday the 30th sunday that famous gospel where our lord gives the two commandments you know, the two commandments. Now, in fact, other rabbis at the time were talking like this and they're trying to cash Jesus out and he gives a perfectly solid, bomb-proof, Teflon-coated answer to them. Not that these two commandments, the famous two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, not that these two commandments replace the law or the prophets, but that on these two commandments hang the whole of the law and the prophets also. So you can't understand the law by implication. You can't understand the prophets unless you go back to the artesian well of these two commandments, really the well of the love of God. Because if God doesn't love us, there's precious little point in our loving him. And it's really only by his grace that we can truly and completely love him, that we can effectively, in a spiritual sense, love him. And I think what you're looking at is... Uh, something that would repay a great deal for their study. It's absolutely stupendous, it's mind-blowing, but it's also extremely dangerous. I mean, anything that's worth a damn is dangerous, you know, anything. So just keep that in mind as we start to take a look at this. The first of the commandments is that you love the Lord your God, that you love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and body. I mean, that's basically the Shema, basically Shema Israel, Hero Israel. And... Uh, you find that, that famous prayer, which is still to this day taught to Jewish children, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently, etc. Taken from text in the book of Deuteronomy, I think chapters 4 and 11, I think you can look that up, catch me out. Again, in the book of Numbers uh, 15, I think 15. But again, don't trust me on these things because I'm hopeless at citations. Look them up. Shema Israel, hear O Israel. And so that first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and body. 
and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, we can do that of our own human strength in the sense that we can begin to do it. Like Peter getting into the water and trying to walk on it towards our Lord. We'll make an absolute dog's dinner, a pig's breakfast, a cat's canopy out of the whole thing. If we try to do it without depending on the love of God, without the grace of God. Grace builds on nature and it's God who will make our love perfect. And remember if that love is to be human, even if the human effort is to be truly human, to be a human act as opposed to the mere act of a man. You, you, you know that distinction? The human act is, uh, it's got, you know, knowledge, intention, will, it's got, uh, you know, information, well that's knowledge. It implies reflection, absorption, digestion of the information, the, the action of the intellect on the information. Decision, the whole bit, and, and it implies at least the minimum of freedom in which a decision can be made. If somebody's holding a gun to your head, or worse still, to the head of somebody you love, which criminals often do, they'll, they'll go for your family, because somebody might be brave, but not when their family is threatened. Well, then your freedom is diminished, obviously, and it's not a fully human act. So even for our attempt at loving God, pathetic and treacherous and undependable as it may be, for our attempt at loving God, for it to be human, to be truly of us, it must also contain the operation of our mind and our reason. So I I suppose don't confuse this love of God with pure emotion. It's not pure emotion. There will be emotion in it, but there will also be reason. A crucial thing in love is the object of the love. And there we get into the whole Aristotelian thing that Aquinas brings up to us, uh, the telos, the end point, what is the purpose, what is the goal, which animates the action, which informs the action, what is the goal? Where do you hope to arrive in this? If we love God, it must be to love God. The mystics tell us this is the hardest thing to do. It takes ages to do it. I think Ignatius said, uh, if anyone's got there, let him talk about it because I don't know anyone who loves God purely for himself as a human being, uh, in the sense that we we have an angle. We always have an angle. We have such needs, and we're so greedy as well. You know, so on the one hand, we have needs, we have fears, and, and and then we're greedy, you know, and we're curious, and we're always looking for something from God. Very hard to love God purely for himself. That's grace. You're talking grace there. Okay, so the love of God, and that's the first and the greatest of the commandments. So you don't talk about loving your neighbor until you love God. Because again, loving your neighbor can be quite utilitarian, you know, because you hope for your neighbor to help you and everything. But to love your neighbor, even if your neighbor has no time for you at all, that's a tremendous thing. That's a fantastic thing. But you're going to need grace to do that. You're going to need God to come into your life, to infuse himself into your soul in order for you to do that. To love like God, you need God's help. And so those two commandments, the first is the first and the greatest. It has primacy to love God. The second is then the love of neighbor. And you can understand it as the vertical and the horizontal, right? The vertical, see, I know it's a bit trite, but it's 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 a very powerful image. It's a nice image. Take the image of the cross, right? The image of the cross, the vertical shaft, is the vertical relationship between the individual and God, between the church and God, us and God. Right, so let's say that's the first of the three commandments of the Decalogue, right? And then the remaining seven, they kind of address really don't the love of neighbour, as it were, starting with parents, and uh, they come after the love of God. So that's the horizontal. So the vertical and the horizontal. Now, I think the point I'm trying to make is that this love is not something dead simple. 
it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's life-giving, it's powerful, but it's also a terrible beauty to coach Yates. There's a terrible beauty there. It's very dangerous. And it's very easy to miss the mark, which is, goes to the very definition of sin, to miss the mark and to make a, a hash of this. Augustine said, Ama et fac quad vis. Love and do what you will. And it sounds very 60s, to go back to the 60s, doesn't it? Love and do what you will. Let it rip, let it roll. Just live it, man. Love and do what you will. And in other places it says, Amadeum et fac quad vis. Love God and do what you will. The same problem, I'd say, comes up in both of them. If you just take that, not so much literally, as if you just take that colloquially, as most people would understand it, love and do what you will, we could be in trouble. So as long as you feel love, as long as you feel the passion that a lot of people mistake for love, which can be a part of love, but a lot of people mistake them, then you're good to go. You can give it a blast, you know, you can, you can take a run at it. And really it's not quite that simple. If you start loving and doing whatever you will, that could lead you anywhere. It can lead you to be like the cherubim and the seraphim praising God wildly in the holy, holy, holy as envisaged in the book of Revelation, or to the diabolical imitation of that that you had in the Third Reich, with all the hundreds of thousands with their arms outstretched going heil, 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 a word which, as I understand it in German, is, is a cognate of or related to the German word for holy. There are dark and diabolical imitations of this. There are real dragons on the road. Love can lead you in any direction. If reason is not there, if you are not informed by the teaching of the church, if you are not informed by the scriptures, by the church's tradition, you could go in any direction here. You could do crazy stuff. So we have to be extremely careful here because that's not what Augustine means. He's presuming that when you love, you love fully as a believer. You love as a child of God, informed by the church's tradition and teaching. And then love and do what you will. But when you love like that, and that, remember, involves your reason and it involves the willingness to take instruction from the church, ultimately from God. So that's where we are. Get into the passion wagon and fuel it up all you want. But you need to be really clear as to where you're going, because that's going to inform the whole journey. So are you going to Woodstock or something which is now a, a nostalgic memory or are you going to the New Jerusalem to heaven, which is something quite different? We need to get all of that clear in our heads. Let's just call it here. Let's just name it, okay? Let's just name this. We don't love God well. We're not good at loving God. Even humanly, even without receiving God's grace to make it really perfect and beautiful. Now, I'm not good at loving God. I'm afraid of him, but I'm not good at loving him. But I put it to you that if you want to serve your neighbor, you have to start by loving God. And if you don't love God, your neighbor is at your mercy or you're at his. It underpins the reliable love of neighbor. Reliable love of neighbor. Now, it's crucial to remember that God loved us first. The scripture scholars tell us, really, that you can't understand the very act of creation as depicted in Genesis in very ritual language. You can't understand that without the whole context of covenant. The very creation itself can be interpreted as being essentially covenantal, in that God intended 
to create. He intended to create us. He intended our good. He intended to love us and he intended to be loved in turn by us. God has intended all of this. He has intended the covenant. And that will give you courage and strength if you meditate on that. Before you lift a finger to love God or feel any love towards God, God loves you. God has always loved you. He knows you and he is intent upon you. He's intent upon all of humanity. That's a prior to everything else. That's absolutely crucial. And the second thing to remember is that God loves your neighbor equally and completely. So you are dealing with family in dealing with your neighbor. And dealing with your neighbor is a tremendous adventure as Chesterton never tired of reminding his readers. He used to be absolutely mystified at people going to foreign countries for adventure. It was very popular to go on safari to Africa at the time because, of course, Britain had the empire. And, and if you had the money, you know, that was all possible. And uh, he always said he could never understand anybody going to Africa except that they wanted to go to Africa and see Africa. Going to Africa for adventure made no sense at all. If you wanted adventure, jump your neighbor's fence and trample his roses. Then you'd have adventure. Or he said mischievously, discuss religion with the maid. You'd have all the adventure you wanted. And, and of course that was mischievous because a lot of the maids were Irish and Catholic, although he didn't say that. So I mean, the tremendous adventure of loving God continues in the love of neighbor, which is adve an adventure and dangerous. There are demons on the road. There are dragons on this road. There's no question about that. You may not love your neighbor well. Your neighbor may not love you. He may not return your love. But our response to God's love, and remember our love for God is a response. It is always secondary to his love for us. It is an apprehending of his love for us and a beginning to understand his love for us. Our love of God must be human. We're not gods, we're not angels. We're human beings. It must involve reason and it must be done in freedom. There is no love of God unless you can tell God to clear off, unless you can turn on God, unless you can successfully rebel against God, which every human being has the terrible freedom to do. So our love of God involves reason and freedom, but it needs grace. It needs God coming into our heart to be stable to be secure, to be perfect. And God can perfect our love for him. But only God can do that. So you love as a man or as a woman with all your faculties, with your whole being, spirit, soul, mind, body. You love with all your faculties. And that includes your mind. You note, you note that. Note that well. Note bene. That includes your mind. So nobody is asking you here to become some sort of a Catholic whirling dervish to sort of whip yourself into a frenzy. That's not Catholic mysticism anyway. The Catholic mystics were, were intensely practical people. You love God as a man or a woman, and then you let him do the rest with all of your faculties. And I, I suppose what I'm getting to here, this means a very rocky relationship with God and with neighbor. Because if you're going to love, if you're going to love with all your faculties, if you're going to love with your mind, that means you're going to love observantly because love is not blind. That is a load of yak manure. Love is blind. Love is not blind. Love is just love. Love sees plenty, but it stays love. 
It's not blind. If you're going to love like this, you're going to love with your eyes open. And that means sometimes you won't feel you love God. And sometimes you won't feel God loves you. Therese of Lisieux had a shocking time. Not long before her death, I think it lasted about 18 months, it was a real dark night of the soul. At times she was even tempted to doubt the existence of God. Doubted his love for her, she doubted any point or purpose to her life. And God regularly does this to souls. He does this to the great mystics. It's not that he deliberately is cruel to you. It's that he allows you to gradually go to school. It's a school of love and to be drawn out in your human nature and to discover the full magnificent extent of human love and its limitations and in doing so to discover again his grace, his presence in your life, infused into your soul. You're stained with God. You smell of God spiritually. You stink of God. He is infused into the tissue of your soul, into your spiritual marrow bones. And God gives grace as he chooses. And we're very limited in our perception. So, I mean, this is going to be a bloody affair. Uh, anyone who thinks that this, the Catholic spiritual life can be summed up as some sort of a series of hallmark cards with pretty flowers and uh, beautiful Laura Ashley designs and little lambs bleating in the field and, and tweety birds in the trees. I mean, you really are on the passion wagon and it's the original one. God knows what you're smoking. Because I, I'm telling you, when the trip wears off, it always does you'll find that the Greeks were right and we get punished for flying that close to the sun. Our wings melt and we fall back to earth. We get punished for stealing fire from the gods as the Greeks would have said. You get punished by your own nature for not turning to God and his grace because only he can make you fly. And the beginning of this relationship is the humility to accept your limitations and then the divinely inspired ambition to transcend them by God's grace. But you must begin with self-love, not self-hate. When the mystics, says, when they talk about self-hate, when they talk about hatred of the world, they mean something quite different. You must begin with a proper self-love because God loves you. With all of your limits and with all of your broken and fractured nature, God loves you. Loves you passionately. Although passion for God is something quite different. He loves you completely with all of that. But you're not going to feel that all the time. And it's going to be a rocky relationship. I, I don't know if you've seen that fantastic series, The West Wing, with Martin Sheen. I watched the whole thing. The character of the president, played by Martin Sheen, is a Catholic. And he had a strict Catholic upbringing. And as a young man was punished quite severely in one incident that has never gone from his mind, where his father caught him, I think, smoking either in the church or outside of it. He'd run in to have a quick smoke and the father caught him. And so a terrible tragedy has happened in the president's office. Uh, one of his personal assistants, his secretary, is a woman. She's up near retirement age. She's much beloved. She lives very modestly and she's never been able to afford a new car. And, and she's so looking forward to her first new car. And everyone's slagging her in the office and everyone's looking forward to her enjoying it and looking forward to seeing it. And she goes off to collect it. And on the way back with the new car, and this can be very dangerous with the new car, on the way back, she's an accident and she's killed. It's an absolutely shocking thing to happen, but in fairness, it's not totally off the Richter scale. Stuff like that does happen. 
and the president is broken to the core of his soul. He, he's in a rage with God. In an absolutely fantastic scene, he's, he's in a church, he's visiting a church for some reason, and the ceremony is over and everything, and he keeps staring at the tabernacle with a growing resentment, and finally he growls at his secret service people to clear the church that he, he wants to be alone. I suppose if you're the president, you can do that. So everyone clears off, including the priests who look after the church, everyone goes. And there he breaks into a monologue, a rant against God and the tabernacle. And he calls him, you thug, you bully, for what he feels he has done. And in the end, after raging against God in a magnificent scene, that, I mean, really only a believer can rage against God like that. You have to fit to do that, but. At the end of it, he deliberately, this is, I really love this gesture. He took out his cigarette, lit it, smoked a few puffs, while staring angrily, belligerently, rebelliously at the tabernacle, flung it to the marble floor and ground it under his foot and turned with a final angry look at the tabernacle and walked away. And it shows the bewildered priest coming out and finding the cigarette on the floor of the aisle of the nave. And the beautiful marble floor. It's a magnificent scene. Let me tell you, love and do what you will, all you need is love. Absolutely all you need is love, but it's the, all you need is the love of God. All you need is to love God back as God loves you, which you can only ultimately do with his help. And that love is an all-seeing love. That love isn't blind. That love sees everything. It believes, it forgives, it loves, but it sees. And it is a hard love. It, sometimes it's like winter light. Do you ever see winter light? Do you ever see that peculiar light that comes through a window in winter? And you see every flaw in the glass. You see how dirty the windows are. In my case, invariably filthy. But also you see the scratches on the window, stuff you might never have seen before. There's a winter light quality to love, even though love is not cold. Love is not cold or merciless or detached. Love reaches out to the other. Love is intensely social. The ultimate other is God. The ultimate social club, if you like, the ultimate family is the Trinity into which we are adopted in Jesus Christ. Think about that. But that love sees. It's as shrewd as an old peasant's eyes. And I say peasant because that's the stock I come from. Peasants are great judges of character. It diminishes with education, along with those phenomenal memories, the ability to recite marriage relationships and, and all the blood relationships, all the rest. It diminishes with education. And I think the reason that country people, poor people, are so notoriously good at judging character is that they have no margin. The poor man can't afford to be cheated. Certainly not more than once or his kids won't eat. You see, you have to be shrewd. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the valley of the squinting windows. That's quite some other thing again. But I'm saying it's the poor man can't afford to be cheated. The eye of God is loving, but it's sharp. It sees. And we have some of that ability. And with God's grace, if we deepen in his love, our eye becomes washed clean and very, very sharp indeed forgiving and loving, but it sees. And so we come to the relationship with people. My friends, I wish I could promise you happiness on this road. I believe in the, the authority of Jesus Christ, I can promise you heaven. But in the short term, in this life, it'll be rocky. And look, I know rocky road, that's a trite expression. Oh, it'll be tough and there'll be challenges and all the rest of it. You could get your heart cut in two. That's what you could get. You can call that a challenge if you want. There's nothing more beautiful or dangerous than people. People are magnificent. People are no joke, as Chesterton made the point. 
And so you have to face with that eye, with that eye that's increasingly clean through prayer and penance and sincerity. And sincerity, remember, in the origin of the Latin word means sine cere, without wax, because the actors in the theatre wore wax masks. Well, they did in the Greek theatre, and the Romans had inherited that from the Greeks. Without wax. You have to start looking at yourself, and that's where confessions come in. But you also, sometimes you're going to have to speak to other people for their own good. Jeepers, good luck to you there. Make your peace with God, because the prophets, you just remember them, never accepted in their own land. When you face people nowadays, it's not like facing people in the past. That was tough enough. But when you face people nowadays, you're facing gods, because modern Western society has made them into gods. People now expect the detailed worship which was once given to God in the old Tridentine Mass, where every gesture was prescribed. Now they can give you a list of pronouns to operate from. In Canada, it has the force of law. People now take themselves so seriously that it's no wonder we're going cracked on antidepressants, no wonder we have drug problems, it's no wonder people drink. They drink, they take drugs, I would say partly to get away from themselves. Sure, who could live with that? Live with God is one thing. Live with a tin pot idol is another. And that's what you're going into. It's, it's like Easter Island. All these frozen gods. All these frozen statues facing out to the sea that nobody can remember what they're for because we've got rid of God because we disregard the teaching of the church and now we can hardly remember our name. I think it was, was a St. Jerome who said that when he heard of the fall of Rome he well nigh forgot his name. It was an old saying that people had for getting an awful shock. When I was growing up, it was a saying for being blind drunk. God, the state of that fellow, he wouldn't even know his name when you met him. We have forgotten our name. We have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten him because we've forgotten God, because he's the only one who remembers who we are. And so we've made ourselves into gods, which we're not. We're not even angels. We've made ourselves into God. We demand a detailed worship, the most elaborate courtesy. We have to be treated now with the greatest care or we'll be triggered and the gods will be wrathful. And then the poor offender will be cast out into outer darkness there to gnash his fillings. So first thing I'll say is good luck to you loving your neighbour. Have fun. Knock yourself out. Believe me, that's lively. It's lively because you see you are at a huge disadvantage. You're a Catholic. You poor old devil. You poor demented Egypt. You're a Catholic. And you can't get away from the fact that you believe there's a purpose to the whole thing. Now, you might be a bad Catholic. Is there another kind? The fact is that you're infected with hope. You're infected with vision, even humanly. And now grace has driven you daft completely. You've got a way above yourself. Not like these petty gods that people have made them into. No, no, no. You've got a way above yourself. You have a taste of the true God. You have a taste of heaven. You have a taste for eternal happiness. And you can't get it out of your head, which is completely understandable. And so now you're facing these people who have contented themselves with themselves, who have found any number of narcotizing ways in this incredibly sophisticated, unprecedented culture in which to make them forget themselves, forget who they are, and become absorbed in some frozen image of themselves that can give no life and can give no happiness. And you're going to go in and you're going to take their feeding dish away from them. You tried that with the dog. You'd be scratching your nose with a hook for the rest of your life. Whatever they give them now. I'm sure it's much more sophisticated than a hook. I'm downing the HSE again. You take that away from them and you'll see where you are. You'll see how ugly things will get. 
People like their bit of comfort. And part of people's comfort is their self-image. Comfort zone is a serious thing. People talk about comfort zone in the same way they talk about love, as if it were some sort of a slogan, as the Americans say, a bumper sticker or a Hallmark card or something like that. Comfort zones are serious things. Comfort zones, they're mental and psychological territory. And all wars somehow relate back to territory. No, 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 be careful here. Because you're not what you were. In the words of Eliot, you're no longer at ease in the old dispensation. You remember that? The journey of the Magi. No longer at ease in the old dispensation. You've been spoiled for everything else. And now you're there spreading your discontent, going round yammering about God and about hope and about a future and about heaven. And all you're going to sow is unhappiness the way people see it. Because they can't see that where they are is such limited happiness. And the time is running out, as it is for all of us. In modern literary criticism, we're constantly told to be active readers of the text, critical readers of the text, that you engage with the text. And you could argue that back or forward, but there, there is sense in it, that you, you do honour to the writer. You chew, you digest the text, particularly if it's a very fine novel. But what if love demands that critical reading of the text? Now, love isn't a tearing apart of the text. You could read it like the Orthodox rabbis read the scriptures. You could read it with that lovely pointer because they won't touch the word. It's sacred. They'll use that lovely silver pointer. And love can demand that delicacy, but you read and you point. And so you end up saying to somebody, I just can't agree with you. I just can't go with you on that. I don't know what to say to you. I love you. I love you to bits. I have such hopes for you, but I can't get away from my own belief in heaven, my love of God, my wanting to go to heaven, and I want you to come with me. I want you to be with me. You're infected with this viewpoint, and that means that you can't stop being a critical reader of the human text, your own and everyone else's. It means that you can't stop interrogating God. It means that you can't be a half a friend. If you're a friend to somebody, you'll be a full friend, but that means that you want them to go to heaven. That makes you a very difficult friend. And it leaves you open to a lot of suspicion because you have an agenda. Now, it's the exact opposite of a selfish agenda, but it may not look like that. It may present as something quite different in the eyes of your friends. Let me put it this way, is that your love for you, love and do what you will, love for you is inseparable from the proclamation of the kingdom, from the reign of Jesus Christ, which is love in action, love in life, love in reality. And that means that you will the good of the other person, understanding that good in the fullest sense, in terms of eschatology, from the Greek eschaton, the last thing, eschatology, the study of the last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. You see human life as this incredible drama. You see a human soul as something that is immortal, but it can be lost or saved. Heaven is something to be had, but it's also something to be lost. If you want to see a caricature of what we are, and sometimes I'm afraid we do live up to our caricature, it's Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. And he's not the worst, but he's a very annoying person. He's maybe not very good. He's a bit too goody-goody and cutie-pie. He's maybe not good at preaching the kingdom in a way that's attractive. But I mean, how do you convert Homer Simpson? And do you think a character like that is plucked from nowhere? That the success of a series like that over decades comes from nowhere, it's because it comes from things that we all identify in human nature and characters that we all know. So I mean, talk to them about the kingdom.
love them lovingly and critically. Sometimes it'll be appreciated and sometimes it will not. But I'm telling you this, if you love like that, if you love with that integrity, if you do that, your no is as positive and life-giving as your yes. Your no is in fact a yes. No, don't drink poison is yes, live because you are loved. No, don't jump off a cliff because yes, stay with us. Come with us. We love you. The world is better with you in it. No, don't commit sin because yes, your soul is beautiful and should not be poisoned with sin as it has been so often and as mine has been so often. Now, only repentant sinners can do this. In other words, you must love with knowledge, with self-knowledge, with an unflinching and loving eye towards yourself. And then you can turn that loving eye towards others. All this with God's grace. And then your no is as beautiful as your yes. Love with God's help, God's grace, like that, like him. Love and do what you will. St. Brendan, pray for us. <laughs>